So being um, part of the volleyball community, I also want to bring to light uh, something that I'm doing uh, with my job at CanFund. Um, for those of you that don't know, CanFund is an organization which helps uh, athletes uh, raise money in support of their qualification to represent Canada uh, worldwide. This isn't just volleyball or beach volleyball, but it's all sports, Canada-wide, um, summer, winter, able-bodied, and Paralympic sports. And, um, you know, we're using this platform to talk a lot about volleyball and uh, beach volleyball. Conrad Leidemann, who's the current Chief Operating Officer of CanFund, uh, my mentor and my boss, uh, has put this together and um, and I'm hoping that we can rally the beach volleyball community and uh, you know and the indoor volleyball community to help raise months for, for our athletes. So April 2nd was Conrad's 48th birthday and 48 is lucky number and in honor of Conrad, um, CanFun is creating the Conrad Lineman Athlete Recipient Award to recognize athletes who have an unprecedented work ethic and a remarkable attitude. You know, throughout every stage of Conrad's career, he's exemplified these qualities, proving just how hard um, his work ethic is and how positivity can take you far. Um, for those of you who don't know, Conrad was a 12-year veteran of the FIVB World Tour and qualified for the 2000 Sydney Games. Um, he brings so much passion into what he does, and he's just he's, he is the world-class athlete and he's a world-class person as well. So we're going to actually embed the link to the donation page. Um, to celebrate his 48th birthday, we're asking any of you to donate $48,408,000 uh, to help fund our Canadian athletes in their pursuit of the games in Tokyo. Um, the great thing about this is you'll actually receive a tax receipt and you will also receive an email with the athletes that you have supported. Um, I think this is a great opportunity for us to come together as a country and to support our, our elite athletes. Um, so thanks everybody for um, donating and uh, you know it's, it's for the best. I think that's awesome. When you talk about how classy Conrad is, he's always a guy looking for a solution. So I remember one of his birthday drives, he bought volleyballs for all the players when he realized a lot of our teams traveling didn't even have the proper equipment to compete on the world tour. Yeah. Uh, or he showed up and played with the pros just because he heard there was a benefit to kind of connect the recreational community and, and the pros. So Conrad just stopped by and kind of volunteered his time and he's played the last two years, which is great to show that a guy like that who, who's done it at the highest level still wants to contribute and be around the players. He, uh, not only in the volleyball community, but in the entire athletics community, you know, like I said, summer, winter, able-bodied Paralympic, he... He's done so much for so many people. I think this is a great opportunity to have everyone sort of recognize all that he's done and help support those that need support. Awesome. So once again, that link will be in the show notes and we'll share it on our social media and hopefully everybody can help support Conrad and Jane because they've supported everybody else yeah. along the way. Two great people, Jane Ruse, Conrad Lineman. All right, everyone. This is this especially exciting i'm starting to feel like a real podcast because it's not just you and i talking or friends of the show like having jake McNeil on the show i mean that's that's awesome he's an international level player but really he's just a buddy that we called up so uh mostly because his mom and dad were busy we couldn't yeah. get them on the show uh but now we feel like we're we're an established podcast because we have one of the best players in canada best players in the world best players in the world and he's agreed to be on the show with us so enough yamming on by me let's introduce our guest tj sanders is TJ here Sa Oh, TJ, yeah. how are you? Thank goodness, thank goodness there's no video because I'm blushing. I yeah. <laughs> I'd love to see that. 
Yeah. Um, no, I'm good. I'm uh, basically where I'm at is I'm kind of in that transition process of going from in Calgary recovering to heading back to Gatineau tomorrow uh, to start to uh, get up with the team again and start training again. Awesome. And uh, so for a lot of people that don't know, you actually were unfortunately sidelined at the last uh, world championships with an injury. So, um, you know, if you don't want to go into too much detail, that's fine. But what sort of sparked that? And uh, how are you in your recovery process right now? Yeah, so what kind of happened was um, August 23rd, we traveled over to Poland um, for kind of a pre-world championship tour. Uh, we got out there, uh, and it was kind of like right off the plane. Things just felt a little bit off. Like, you know, things felt more tight than normal. I was having more pain than normal. Um, but I kind of just attributed that to my age. I was like, okay, I've been doing this for a while. I yeah, you're getting old. How old, are, how old are you now? 27. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Man. Okay. So it's super old. That's when that really starts to go. Once you hit 27, <laughs> downhill. Um, actually, at the time, I was 26, too, so that's rough. Um, but... Uh, but, but it was kind of one of those things where I'd been playing, you know, like 12 months straight for kind of like six years. And I was like, okay, maybe it's just another long flight. Like maybe it's just aches and pains. Um, it might not be anything serious. Kind of was just like having it looked at. Um, the next day we had our first friendly match in this kind of uh, pre-Worlds tour. Um, and the same thing, we kind of start the, start the match. I'm feeling a little bit off. Um, I kind of had that feeling like... Uh, my hip needed to click. You know when your like elbow has to click or yeah. your knee or something like that? I kind of had that feeling in my hip like it needed to pop into place or something like that. So it was our first technical timeout. Head over to the bench. I like feel like this thing has to pop. So I like just asked my therapist. I'm like, hey, can you just pull on my leg? So I'm laying on the ground and she's just like reefing on my leg to try and, you know, pop it back into place. The doctor that I am, that's apparently what my diagnosis was. Um <laughs> Obviously, that just got to jimmy your spine in there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> didn't exactly help. Anyway, I kind of got pulled out uh, at that point, and that was the last time um, I really felt healthy or was trying to play. So that was August twenty third. That was a long time ago, um, and that was three weeks before World Championships. Um, and I was just trying to get better to play. Uh, you know, like I saw a couple different osteopaths and chiros. I was getting images. I was doing all sorts of stuff. Um, and then as I was kind of trying to play, it, it kind of worsened a little bit. Um, and then eventually it just got to the point where, um, yeah, there's two spondies and a lot of like other issues kind of going on down my spine. Um, and because of that, it was like, I'm going to need for sure. It was actually a really unknown um, injury because I had an old injury that didn't heal properly and a fresh one plus a lot of like... Uh, issues with the integrity of my spine because of those issues. Um, I mean, like everything, all the pressure is kind of running through your spine. So because of all the jumping and all that stuff. And this was just of, from constant overuse or? Just constant overuse, Jeez. just constant playing. Um, nothing like no, well, there were, there were some like throughout that once it felt like it was injured. It was just a buildup. It, it was kind of a buildup, but there was one time we're about to play Brazil um, and at this point I hadn't really been playing much and we were kind of, for lack of a better like descriptor, like kind of saving me. It's like, okay, I don't really, we're playing, you know, Egypt, lower ranked teams. It's like, okay, there's no need to risk the body at this point. Um, but then we're playing Brazil world number one. It's like, okay, I'll get ready for, for tonight's game kind of thing. 
little did I like, I, I wasn't really piecing it together. I always laugh at my girlfriend now because literally I like couldn't walk. I was like going down to breakfast, like hobbling, would sit there and eat and in like a seated position was in pain. But in my head, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm ready to go. I'm be good to go. Like get it going. I'll <laughs> pop some pills. I'll put a patch on. What? No problem. Um, and what happened is that morning practice, like I couldn't even, I couldn't run after balls to set. Like people had to toss me. Um, still expecting to play that night. Anyway, I basically, in this one scenario, guy serves, passes like pretty good. I take one step with my left foot. The next step, I like put all my weight on my right foot. And then it just kind of like goes. Jeez. And I like fall to the ground. And it was like one of those moments where I was like, okay, that's officially, it's officially done. There's no world championships, you know. Um, and then basically since that point, it's been like the first couple months where, you know, me just lying down. I couldn't really walk for a while. Um, trying to trying to do whatever sort of resting recovery I could do. I mean, there was no, I couldn't move the back because there's so much like inflammation and things going on that I, I wasn't really able to actually do much. Um, so must have been like three, four months uh, before I started seeing a physio. Um, and then, you know, basically like tiny, like the most embarrassed, like I'm doing like on an exercise ball, tiny little crunch. That's you got the, doing. you got the pink weights out. I got like, not even, it's like body weight. I'm like, those are my goal. Oh, like, I got two weeks. I'll reach the things, you know? Um, and then, yeah, basically since that point, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's been, you know, quite a while. Um, but now I'm at the point where I'm like in the gym lifting, um, obviously, the pink weights and kind of real, real metal, silver color. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's nothing on the ends of them, but <laughs> <laughs> but no. I'm back to I'm back to. Uh, I mean, somewhat, somewhat regaining my strength, and then yeah, I head back to Gatineau tomorrow, and I'll I'll get back in the gym a little bit, and then. Uh, so, are you with the full time training center guys, or are all the senior senior boys coming back to Gatineau as well? Typically, like, beginning of May is when all the guys start to come back. I mean, there's still a few guys playing overseas. Yeah. Um, but I know there are there will be tomorrow or I guess in two days from now when I get there, there will probably be, like, five of us, you know, kind of thing. And then slowly guys will trickle in. And then we leave, I believe, May 20th for our, our first kind of trip, I guess. Okay. And where's the trip? That's a little like pre World League trip, or I guess Nations League trip. They keep in, changing uh, the name. Yeah, they're confusing me. I'm an athlete. Don't yeah. don't put too many words I, in my mouth. I okay? know. <laughs> so it's a pre it's a pre VNL trip for you guys to get ready, and uh, and then I guess what the show starts, and you guys are off on the and full. The show starts, yeah, yeah. So the last weekend of, of May is our first uh, VNL, which is in Argentina. Um, and then, yeah, the whole thing kind of begins. It goes Argentina, Ottawa, Chicago, uh, no, sorry, Ottawa, Iran, Chicago, and then I believe Brazil. Yeah. Wow. So it's everywhere. Um, okay. So for those of our listeners that don't know sort of the process from club to university to the national team, you've had sort of an unconventional route to being the best in the world. Um, you started off at the University of Manitoba, things didn't work out, you went to Mac, uh, that's where we sort of met and, and played against each other, and, and by playing against each other, you were on the bench, and I was on the bench, and I think you had a better chance of getting in the game than I did, but, you know, 
Um, but I then... Was I redshirting? It might have been... I wasn't allowed in the game. Yeah, well, I, I don't think I was allowed in the game either, but I don't think it's because I was redshirting. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you were sort of the, one of the first guys to go all in uh, to Team Canada and their sort of full-time training center development team. How did you get onto the FTC and sort of what was your thinking and processing from moving from the CIS to the FTC? So I think my my end goal ever since I was, I was quite young was to play on the national team and play professionally. Um, my aspirations to play any post-secondary volleyball were really in relation to that progression. It was never really like, oh, I want to go win a CIS title. It's like, oh, I want to use that level to then, you know, kind of as a platform to get me to the, to the next level. Right. Um, so when doing that, when I went to different universities, that was still my mindset was to, was to sort of get there. And then throughout that time, after my year at Manitoba and the, after my second year, I played on the junior national team. Um, so I kind of got a taste for what the international game looked like. Um, and I truly, I just believe that, you know, if, if I'm now 19, and playing against other 19-year-olds, I'm kind of disadvantaged compared to an Italian guy who's 19 playing against men in a professional league. So my concept or my kind of thought process was, okay, how do I get there faster? Um, and I sort of just looked at it like, okay, I, I think going to the full-time training center will give me that sort of international experience. Um, at that time, it was, a, it was a pretty strong group going into the FTC. Uh, so I knew that I'd be like surrounded by high-level players. It was kind of like the core group of the junior national team older than me. Um, and then, yeah, basically how it kind of went down was I, I just kind of through the junior national team, I obviously knew Glenn and I knew a lot of the um, national team program guys and managers and coaches and all that stuff. And I just sort of reached out saying, Hey, I think this is what, this is what my path is going to look like. Like, what do we all, does everybody agree? Um, and they supported me kind of fully and, and then I, uh, yeah, went to the full-time training center and, and I mean, that's a, that's a major shift from when you're in CIS and it's sort of, you know, you're practicing every day, uh, but you have to balance a lot of things, right? You're like balancing school, you're balancing how to pay for school, you're balancing whatever you got. Um, when the full-time center is just like, Hey, you're going to be training until you can't anymore. And that's just going to be your every day. Uh, I'd actually like to take a jump back because whenever I get a chance to give a shout out to Club Kids, I will. Uh, in 17, you, or maybe it was 18, you, you beat friend of the show Alex Poldma and Will Sidgwick, a very good interclub team. Um, I, I know you were a stud in university, but I think a lot of people remember your club team won 17 nationals, right? Uh, and you had Scapanello yeah. and a few other guys on your club team. Did you know at that time that you could play at the next level when you were just dominating club with, with Four City and all the guys there? You know, it's funny, like I, I look back at those times and I really didn't picture us as dominating club. Like when we were 16, we went to nationals and finished like, I don't know, 30th or something. Like we were not great. And then that 17 year at provincials, we finished ninth. So like we're not like this dominant. So you're the dark team. horse. <laughs> we were kind of the dark horse going into that. But I think it's a cool uh, insight is that we go ninth at provincials go to nationals, we win nationals, obviously like, whoa, crazy Cinderella story, dark horse. And then the next year, like just the amount of confidence that shifted, then all of a sudden, then we were that team that was dominant. We like couldn't lose. It's the weirdest thing. We went from losing like 50% of our games to never losing the next year. I don't think we got that much better at volleyball, but we figured out something, right? Figured out something. <laughs> um, so you talked about that sort of, we'll call it, uh, 
play school balance in university where you have to juggle your classes and your finances and obviously playing and performing. Why don't you take us through sort of the typical FTC day and what that involved in terms of practice and load and, and workouts and everything there? Yeah, FTC was it, was it was pretty unique in that way because you're not – it's all developmental-based. It's not performance-based. So you can beat your legs up until you can't walk anymore every day of the week, and that's okay, right? Because it's not like, oh, on Saturday i got to play a game and potentially you know compete. Um, so at the beginning, like the first few months are like heavy hypertrophy phases. Um, you're doing like a lot of conditioning. You're basically trying to build the foundation um, so that you can handle the load for the second half of the – of the kind of season, I guess you'd call it. Um, so, I mean, there would be, yeah, you'd go in, you'd have like a heavy, heavy lift in the morning. Um, and then you'd pair that always with technical work. So you'd go and have a heavy lift and then I'd be setting, um, you know, lots and lots of balls. And then in the afternoon, it would depend on where we're at. Um, again, if we're at the beginning of, of that kind of process, it would be a lot of uh, maybe setter hitter relationships where I'd just be setting guys a bunch, maybe not so much gameplay yet. Um, and then as the year kind of progresses, you start implementing more gameplay. Um, but the loads were, were very high. There was a lot of jumps, a lot of weights. Um, and basically, they're trying to build you so that, you know, you can handle a bunch of years playing professionally and, and your body can make that transition to a, to a higher level. So did you think you underwent uh, a bigger change sort of mentally or physically when you're at the FTC? Because you sort of, you said before, you flipped your mind and... You really went all in and said, okay, if I want to be where I want to be internationally, this is what I need to do. Um, so out of, out of your FTC experience, what do you think was um, maybe the best advice you got? Or what did you think you got the most out of with, uh, with your time at the FTC? I would, I would think it's like I was basically beaten down enough to the point where I built that resilient factor. You know, it was kind of like you're beating yourself up uh, in the weight room and you're going to play and you're like barely jumping, barely moving, but you still have to learn how to play. Right? Like even though you're not moving well, you're not feeling strong, you still have to play. Um, and then, I mean, just the fact of there isn't that game at the end of the week. You always, like, I mean, as a competitor, you're like looking forward to that game where you get to, the juice gets to flow and the adrenaline gets to run and everything feels good. I mean, when you don't have that and you're just kind of grinding and practicing all the time, um, you kind of, you develop, yeah, I guess a, a higher degree of resiliency and, and the ability to push yourself a little bit harder. Um, and I think in doing it, I don't know if there's another way that you can kind of build that except for just basically hitting the grind, like just grinding and grinding and grinding. So as a setter, you'd say you, uh, you don't got the juice, but you got the sauce. I mean, I got the butter. Okay. The fridge is open. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you like loading that. Up. <laughs> like, you just see the wheels turning slowly, but they were turning. <laughs> Slow motion's better than no motion, you know. Uh, I'll go. I guess I don't know how to follow that up. Um, we'll we'll get to Glenn in a second. But is there anything anything you'd like to share with with our viewers or the fans about what uh, what Stefan Antigua meant to the program and what he was able to do? I, I know he had to step away, but uh, did he have any influence on you as a player? And, and can you just mention what he did for for the squad? Yeah, I I'm a huge Stefan Antigua fan. I I think he did like you know worked miracles. He was well. The cool thing about his like sort of philosophy and even his style of play when he was playing is he's like a super creative, innovative guy. 
Um, and I think we were a team that, you know, we're pretty strong in, in the areas of like structure and, you know, discipline and things like that, but we lack that little creative edge. Um, and so I think bringing him in like kind of really complemented that nicely and, and we were able to grow quite a bit because of that. Um, and for me personally, yeah, for sure, he gave me really a lot of freedom to kind of do what I wanted. We'd always kind of be trying new things. Because um, when I kind of look at it, you know, for us to get to six in the world took took a certain aspect. It took like, you know, a lot of reps. It took a lot of competition. It took a lot of that stuff. But for get, from getting from six to one takes another level. Like it takes a innovation. It takes creativity. It takes a, a different concept. Um, because all those teams are going to be amazing. You have to do something a little bit differently. We can't just go hit the ball harder and become one in the world. Um, so I think he really brought a different kind of approach. And I think the fact that he gave me that freedom to be, um, you know, to kind of, yeah, play with it a little bit and try new things. Uh, I think it really paid off. Awesome. Um, so now you're sort of getting ready for the, um, VNL season. How does that lead into your club season? Because you just got a contract. You're going back overseas for the what the first time in, in over a year. What's it, eighteen months now? Or yeah, so I will be doing another like summer season with the national team. Right. So we basically go through that summer. Yeah. Um, and World Cup will be in October, so it's quite late. Um, and then after October, or I guess it's not after October, but after it'll be probably about mid October. Um, I'll go back to Poland and uh, play another yeah, another professional season. So does your club team have any sort of say on your load with the national team? Like, do does any of their sort of um, coaching staff work alongside Glenn or any of the other VC staff and say, okay, listen, we need TJ for this. We understand, you know, you're paying him and need him for this. Is there any sort of collaboration between the club and the, the federation? Well, typically how it works is, is the clubs have to release us for all international matches. So Volleyball Canada basically always gets priority over anything club club related. Um, rarely in my experience has there been that much collaboration. It's just been more, okay, when are you going to get here? And I mean, all those clubs will know that the World Cup is in October. So it's just kind of the reality that you know a lot of players won't be going to their clubs until quite a bit later. Um I mean, I think clubs wish they had a little bit more power, but just the reality is, is you know, FIVB ruling is that the international game just sort of takes precedent over over club. Interesting. Uh, I'm going to risk it. We're going to try to go down a tactical wormhole here. Um, <laughs> I, I'm working with the beach national team, and I was lucky enough to shadow uh, Lionel and Dan Lewis, and there was a bunch of us at FTC last week. There's about 20 of us learning all the tricks there. Uh, one thing that Lionel brought up that. Basically, when you're scouting an international team, you really want to break down the setter. Everybody's about distribution, and if you have a body language tell or any trends. Um, so how does that affect your game? That basically, if they if they can break down a secret of yours, or if they know if you take two steps forward, you're going to set back. Like As a setter, are you aware of any tendencies, and you try to play a cat-and-mouse game with the other team? For sure. And I, I mean, that's where like the fun stuff happens. That's why that's why being a setter is fun. Um, basically what happens is, is I'm watching myself as well, looking for those tendencies, um, and then playing with them also because when I'm, when I'm playing a team, rarely am I setting distribution wise anyway, um, in relation to what I want to set, I'm setting in relation to their blocking system. So, I mean, that makes it typically more difficult for a team to match up because they have to know themselves well. And most teams do. It's the same as us. Like if I'm front row, 
we know that teams are probably going to attack me, right? So we kind of play our defensive system around that. Um, and so the reality is then it's like, okay, how much are they going to play over me? Or how much am I going to play over the small blocker? Or how much, like things like that. I, I would say rarely is it, oh, when he takes two steps forward, he does this. Because that's not really... If at this level you're still, especially internationally, like I think a lot of times in club, um, I might get into that sort of tendency. Um, but when you're you're playing such a numbers game, I, I don't think there would be specific tendencies. And if there were, they would align with what I'm doing with the other team's blocking system. So, I mean, if, if a team was really going to scout me, they should look at their own blocking system first, and then they're going to figure out what I'm going to, what my idea is. So, and then it's that game of like how self-aware are they versus like, okay, can they become, you know, can, are they going to switch block more? I mean, that's something we're seeing a lot now is if there's a small blocker, he'll like for me, even for instance, there's times they're all go in the middle and block just because they think I'm out there. So they're going to set to where I am, but then that's where Graham is or, or one of our bigger blockers um, because it's more based on blocking systems. That's why it is actually setter tendencies. Nice. So with all the information available to you guys, what gets filtered down to the players? Like what would a, a morning of a game look like or a day before a game? Like how much information are they sharing with you guys? And honestly, how much are you, you and your teammates able to absorb? Because there's so much data on everybody right now, right? Yeah, I think, I think there is a ton of data. The, the one interesting thing is that the more experience you have, the easier it is to filter that. Like I can kind of now look at a game sheet and, and you know, in a couple minutes be like, okay, this is what my game plan will be. Um, but one thing that I've noticed, especially when I was younger in my career, is that I'd be so honed into that game plan, that middle of the game when things switched, I would, I would really struggle with that. It's like, oh, but I'm supposed to run this overload because this smaller blocker does whatever, whatever, and I'd kind of be stuck there um, and not have backups. When I think my attachment to that game plan is a little bit looser, um, also because I know that I'll have a lot of tools to, to get myself out of those situations. I would say that in, a, in the morning of a game, um, I mean, typically, like, the night before a game, we'll do a video session, might go over, like, their rotations, what that's going to look like. Um, morning of the game, for sure, the receivers will watch servers quite a bit. I'm rarely in that. Um, but what I'll do is I'll go, I mean, the last couple years they've been doing it, where I'll go with Steph, and we'll basically just talk about what their blocking system looks like. A little less formal, because a lot of times, again, their blocking system might be related to the other team's offensive system, right? So I can't get too, like, hung-ho about... Gung ho, gung ho, gung ho, gung ho. Yeah, word guy. What's it? What is it? Gung ho, gun. Oh, it's gun. Oh, no, yeah, yeah gung ho. Well, if you want to say you're hung low, that's a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just slipped in there. Whoops. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, but yeah, pretty much it, it sort of depends on on what different tendencies, offensive, defensively, that defensively are going to be, uh, and then. And then kind of playing off each other. Uh, I'll ask one more technical question before Dallas gets us in a different wormhole here. Um, anybody <laughs> no, who's watched... We were, too, we were close. We almost, almost fell down at there. Yeah, the wheels <laughs> almost came off. This is what Josh reels me in. Says, okay, you got your laugh. Um, anybody who's watched Team Canada over the last few years, I mean, there's there's certain tournaments when you go to an Orsica, the ball changes, and then you're, you're a guy who really adjusts well. Where you Spencer when we have a Molten? You use your jump float when it's Mikasa. Uh, how do you guys adjust to the different tournament needs? How are you as a setter trying to earn points with your serve and kind of take over with your defense? Like, how, how do pro players keep adjusting to all the little things that, say, Norseka throws at you versus FIV events and so forth and so on? I, I do think that the change in ball does make quite a bit of a difference. I think the Molten, like, 
you can spin serve that thing and never miss. Like it's just got this, it'll drop every time it takes the contact so nicely because obviously they, they brought out the new McCaster ball to make the game a little bit slower and a little bit more difficult um, initially anyway. Um, so for me, when I'm, when I'm trying to kind of pick out a serving tactic, um, it depends a lot on the other guys on the team. I mean, if we have a, a lineup where a lot of us are floating, then I'll spin. Um, if we have a lineup where there's a lot of spin serves and maybe a lot of risk, then I'll just manage. Um, because I think that's that's more my role. I'm not a I'm not a guy that's going and hitting a spin serve 130 kilometers an hour. Um, but I am a guy that can kind of change things. And and I also think that makes it important as well with other teams that are scouting me. They've all watched me serve a lot, so if I can have some different variations. Um, that always kind of helps me out, but I would say it, it depends a lot on what the team's serving strategy is going to look like. If we're risking a lot, like if we have a lineup where there's four spin servers, five spin servers, I'm probably going to float for the risk factor, but also for the, if the passers are only passing spin serves, you all of a sudden get comfortable with that feel. Um, so just to give them a different look. Interesting. Nice. I like that. Um, so I've got a pretty good story that involves another friend of the show and good name guy, Dal Sunius. Um, when I was coming out of the junior national team onto the senior national team, uh, the coach at the time, Leonard Crap, wanted to transition me from being a blocker to a defender. So I'm, you know, I'm a little bit taller than you. I'm six five, but that's still on tour undersized blocker. Are you just throwing that in just to as a stat? That had no relevancy to what we're doing right <laughs> hey, now. Hey, listen. <laughs> uh, just for all the listeners to know, he's about two inches taller than me, and that's uh, where we're at. Listen, you you talked about your height in other areas. I'll talk about my height in the real area. Uh, anyway, so Leonard comes up to me. And, he's, and we have a meeting at the end of the year. This is just after uh, I got my first top 10 finish in Halifax. And he says, okay, we're transitioning you to be a defender. I need you to start reaching out to these guys that we want you to play with. And at the time, I guess, Sunius had reached out to them and he had wanted to transition from playing indoor to beach because I guess the load would have been a little easier on his joints with, with the movement and whatever. So I'm a 19-year-old kid at the time. This was, I think, 2012. And I'm, I'm sort of starstruck because I'm just introduced to the international game. I, think I've, I don't think I've ever met him, but I know who he is because I've always seen him play at World League and stuff like that. So because of Volleyball World So Connected, I have him on Facebook. So I don't have any other means of talking to him. So I write this big, long Facebook message that like had gone through multiple different drafts and like... I made sure that my word choice was perfect, and I send him this big message being like, hey, this is who I am, this is what I'm doing, and it takes him a couple of days to respond, and his response is, dude, no way, your name's Dallas too? <laughs> <laughs> so my question... That's a good point. That, that's, that, and that was his point. Dude, no way, your name's Dallas too. So my question for you is, has there ever been that moment uh, where you thought about transitioning to BH? Or what's your thought about guys who are on the indoor national team sort of streamlining themselves into the beach scene? I've, I've definitely, I guess, thought about it um, for the reasons that you kind of mentioned. Like, I, I feel like it would be way easier on the joints, um, way harder on the cardio and I think like all that side of it. But, the wallet too. Don't forget that. 
wallet yeah i guess that's that's a good point um yeah don't like that either that sounds not as good um i mean i've thought about it but but not really seriously i think it i think it could potentially be something that closer to the end of my career um if i was like maybe looking to transition into something and maybe maybe i just like couldn't give up volleyball and i really wanted to to keep at it um and give beach a shot but i don't i don't see me you know, like midway through my career switching over. Yeah. Um, because you're two inches taller than me, so I couldn't yeah. obviously keep up. Well, you know what the problem <laughs> you know what the problem is, is we don't have any guys in the development stream that are named TJ too, so I don't know where oh, you'd get so a partner. I, bring up too. I thought that's actually what your question is gonna be. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody's <laughs> reached out to you and had the name TJ? I was like <laughs> I mean not yet, but if you're out there Feel free. You got a new partner. My new thought process is to sort of bring Volleyball Canada in one harmonious circle. Is they should give a wild card bid because I don't know if you know this, but there's a three star in Edmonton this year. They should be okay. giving out a wild card bid to uh, two indoor guys to see how they pony up in the beach scene. I mean, that would be really rough unless it's Steve Marshall. Like guys are gonna look, I think, a little bit rough. We're not. So, gonna, we're not gonna move so smooth. Added, added, and this is your own personal opinion because we do with a lot of. Uh, we do a lot of what ifs on on. Uh, I almost said spit sure. trick, but it's on passing dimes. Yeah. We do a lot of what ifs here. If you were to submit two guys to play, uh, let's say a, a beach trials against the current beach national team, who are your two guys that you're putting forward, and why? For sure, Steve. I mean, can I put Steve twice? Can he be both the blocker and the and the defender? It's gonna be tough, but. Um, <laughs> Well, no, okay, I would say for sure Steve because, I mean, he's had a big beach history. Um, he's like a freak athlete, all that sort of stuff. I'm trying to think, like, what a bigger guy would be our blocker. Uh, you, even though well, you're three I mean, inches shorter than me, or yeah, two inches. Yeah, yeah. wow, where did the three? <laughs> I mean, just constantly. This is just a bad drink. Um, no, it definitely wouldn't be me. I would be a defender. Uh, come on, Dallas, focus. Um who would it be? I'm thinking like maybe Graham, but he's got like he's a little tight. I so don't I don't know if you I know mean, this, but Graham has a history in beach. He I uh, know, I, I know, but I know, I know. But also, it's also one of those things because I have to mention it. Shawan is probably will listen to this and be like, "It's obviously me. It's obviously me." <laughs> so don't say and it's him. So he's a child. He can't play at that level. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, Blocker, I guess I got to go Graham. I Probably Graham and Graham Steve. Graham and yeah. Steve? Well, hey, yeah. if Volleyball Canada is listening, we're submitting Vigris <laughs> Marshall as our wild card for uh, exactly. the Edmonton three-star. Spit and Chicklets has the authority. Spit. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're passing dimes, but we'll, we'll, look, we'll look the other way on that one. No, I'm trying to follow your lead. Ah, uh, don't. <laughs> I, true. I should know better yeah. at this point. We've been friends long enough. You should know. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we could set up a table at FTC this weekend when the athletes get released from Glenn. We could just be out front because <laughs> let's just have a sign that says, listen, if you're a left side, Gord and Mar are ahead of you. And Lupecki's coming right from university, probably to the national team. So if you're like 26, 27 and not on the international team, just come to the beach side and we'll just we'll give you a ride home. So TJ, I'm actually going to email this to you after the show is done. But I have this pamphlet going around for the indoor guys as soon as they start or as soon as they're done talking with Glenn. It's called So Your Knees Hurt, an introduction to beach volleyball. That's pretty good, and that actually might work. I mean, yeah. I'm I'm working with a like so my back hurts. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm kind of on the on the same same spectrum. But I do think that you should have one of those set up. You know the those RBC training grounds where it's like the they kind of look for everybody can come try out and look to become an Olympic athlete. You basically just set those up at every indoor event you can find, and then test them out, see how high they jump in sand, and see how they move in sand. We'll have a pocket of sand. Yeah, there you're you go. onto something here. That seems like a terrible investment, not great <laughs> returns, but. I mean, sure. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'll facilitate whatever I can. I mean, your head's going to be on the billboard, so you better get behind yeah, exactly. it. <laughs> yeah. Is that what I agreeing to do this? That's what happened? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot There's a lot in the fine print of the contract this you is, signed yeah, with exactly. us. Exactly. This is legally binding. Yeah. I, I knew that. I should have known that. Yeah. Um, so a big thing with us on the podcast as well is um, sort of the behind-the-scenes look and uh, just little different stories from, from being overseas. There's a lot of different things in the beach world that happen just because it's so sort of by the seat of your pants. Um, quickly, give us either your most memorable or one of your funniest stories from uh, from being overseas playing. Oh, this is actually a tough one. Uh, funniest story because, like you said, I think beach volleyball you're you're kind of put in these unorthodox situations because you're kind of your own team kind of thing. So, I mean, when we're on the road, especially like with Canada, it's I'm just a sheep, you know, I'm just like kind of following the train and, and go to the trough and eat and, and go to the gym and all that stuff. Um, and the same as internationally. So I'm trying to think of what a, what a good one would be. So here's a, here's a story for you that was featured on our first episode. Friend of the show, Jory Mantha. I was in Ljubljana, Slovenia playing and uh, someone approached me and said, Oh my God, you're from Canada. I love Jory Mantha. And that's it. <laughs> I gotta say, your the change in your face when you brought on that accent was perfect. Like I don't know how you, like your jaw changed where it was. It's, it's Eastern eyes. European Dow. It's a whole that's different Dow. That's a whole wow. That's impressive. Um, okay, funny stories. Funny stories. Funny stories. Uh, any super fans out there? I know you got your own uh, TJ Sanders oh, Instagram page. This is one. This is one pretty good one. Um, so every time we play, well, I mean, when you play some countries, like you'll make a post, and the fans from the other country always kind of like write on your posts and stuff like that. <laughs> and um, it just became this this thing where every time we play Iran, they constantly be like, all these people from like I think most of my followers are from Iran, and we'll just basically say like iran will win this will yada yada, yada <laughs> all these different posts and this one time uh justin duff made a post i'm basically just stealing his story but i mean we we're all there so it's fine he, you're all uh, sheep posted something and i gave him a shout out you're welcome um and basically he made a post and actually was it on his i could be wrong i think it was on his anyway the moral of the story is that all these people from iran are or commenting being like, Iran will win, and then a bunch of stuff in Arabic maybe, and like stuff we don't understand, all this stuff. And then one thing said, Justin Duff is cow is dog. <laughs> and it was like for sure meant to be derogatory. Like it was not a compliment. It was like, <laughs> I mean, because all of them are like really aggressive. Um, and yeah, is cow is dog. Or I mean, I could be getting it wrong. I don't want to be getting it wrong. But it was something like absurd that we've talked about for a long time after. And every time we play Iran, we all check our social media because we're like praying to be that person that <laughs> <laughs> is cow is dog or is whatever. You know? um, 
So there's two things that I'm taking away from this. One, if you ever miss a serve with the molten, I'm going to be on your ass. Yeah, 100%. Spin serve. Float serve? Okay, so if you miss a spin serve, you better know I'm getting into your DMs. You're going to hear it from me. Oh, don't go into my DMs. Make that public. (laughs) I need to be publicly shamed if I'm missing with a molten. And I can't wait for you to post another thing on Instagram because from here on in, I'm just going to say Iran will win no matter what the context. (laughs) Honestly, that's a very – no, that's a thing. I'll post a photo. It's like me in the forest. I ran for gold. I just had a great trip with my girlfriend. I ran will win. (laughs) Uh, But it's like just enough that I'm a little bit afraid. Uh, (laughs) How serious? Win what? Like, are they coming to take over? What's going on? That's the question. Win what? Perfect, man. Well, thanks for being uh, thanks for being part of this. We appreciate you coming on, and uh, you know, good luck with the rest of the year. I think Josh and I will for sure be in uh, in Ottawa checking you guys out, and uh, I think this is a good opportunity for us to sign off. Uh, really appreciate you being here, and uh, best of luck with the season moving forward. We'll uh, we'll be sure to have part two of this interview in uh, in Ottawa when you guys are winning at uh, Volley Nations League, World League, whatever the hell I want to call it now. Yeah, well, thanks, guys, and I'm uh, yeah looking forward to seeing where you take this thing. It's pretty cool. Yeah, thanks, bud. Awesome. Thanks, TJ. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care, buddy. See ya. Friends of the show, this is Passing Dimes' first pledge drive. We're not asking you to telephone. We're asking you to tell a friend. we got to spread the message about what Passing Dimes is all about. What do you like? We know what you like. You like podcasts. You like volleyball. You like friendship. Guess what? If you like what you've heard today and uh, you like other episodes, be sure to subscribe to us on Podbeam, Apple Play, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, be sure to click our link to our Instagram page to check out snippets from the show and uh, subscribe on Podbeam. Be sure to give us a FIV five-star major review thing. Five stars. Five stars. Five stars. Five-star major. Uh, some exciting news coming out of the NCAA this week. Uh, the the selection show has happened, and the eight teams have been announced for women's beach volleyball taking place uh, in the beautiful Gulf Shores of Alabama. And Dallas, you mentioned that the FIB did a great article about how many international players on there. You and I are going to take a second and just talk about how many Canadians are there. Yeah, so the FIVB did a great article showcasing all of the what they called foreign players that are representing the American schools at the NCAA National Championships. And uh, coming in at number one with 11 athletes was Canada. So if you'll listen, we have all 11 Canadian athletes participating at this weekend's NCAA Beach Volleyball National Championships. I'm going to be the one-upper. I'm going to one-up you, and we're going to list 12. Even though she's a red shirt, we're still going to count her. So there's 12 Canadians. 12. Bam. All right, well, let's lead the way. I think they deserve it because USC... They, they've won three out of the last four, maybe. I think USC took it last year. but when, Your perennial when, powerhouse. When Sophie Bukovic was there, they, they won every year, so we'll give them top billing. So Alex Paletto from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. She will be playing against Stetson University, who has three Canadians. Friend of the show, Devin Dunn. His sister, Darby Dunn, will be competing there. Uh, and she's also with her partner on the BC circuit, uh, circuit excuse me, Quincy Burker's there. Not to be uh, left out, Jalen Vischer from Alberta will be competing. So that's that's four Canadians in, in one one bracket of the tournament here. That's an awesome start for Canada. I mean, whoever comes, it's going to be nice that whoever wins, there's definitely going to be a Canadian moving on to the next round. 
Uh, unfortunately, with LSU and Pepperdine, they do have some international players, but none from Canada. So We're not rooting for them. Skip it. Uh, <laughs> the next one, Florida State versus Cal Poly. Not to be outdone. Molly McBain from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. She did very well at Nationals last year with... She'll be across the net from Cal Poly star Tia Merrick. So no love loss there. Play together when they're at home. Battle it out on the NCAA. Tia Merrick, former world champion in the under-21 FIVB World Championships. And we'll give a shout-out to Vanessa Roscoe, who is also with Cal Poly. I don't know if she'll be in the top five that is there, but obviously she's been there in her redshirt year. So best of luck moving forward. We'll see if she competes in the tournament. Uh, and the last match in the quarterfinals is Hawaii versus UCLA. Hawaii has Jenna Bands from Cambridge. And Emily Maglio from BC. So another BC athlete making their way through the NCAA, which is awesome. And probably the two most famous from BC, Megan and Nicole McNamara, uh, will be the top team for UCLA trying to defend their championship. And From where? Vancouver, BC. From what school? UCLA. From what school? You. I'm not doing that. Oh. I, have no about. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking you about. You don't know that chant? No. It's you. See. Oh. Hey. <laughs> lame, lame. Not doing it. Won't do it. Uh, and joining them, this will be an interesting one, is because Leah played for Hawaii last year, and she's transferred and now suiting up for the UCLA Bruins. Uh, that'll be an interesting one. I wonder uh, what what the feeling is around Hawaii, but uh, Leah. I mean, I don't know the particulars of, of why she left or how she left, but I know as someone who has transferred universities a few times <laughs> uh, that when I played uh, former teammates and former universities, I was out for blood and uh, I really wanted to stick it to them. Um, I actually had the opportunity to do both when I was at Guelph, play the American school I went to in Florida, beating them and uh, playing York University, beating them too. So yeah, it'll be uh, nothing better than, than beating a rival, right? Especially when you used to play for them. There you go. So the NCAA, we touched on this format last week with Jake McNeil. Uh, best of five, rank your teams one through five. They all play each other almost in like a tennis format. Your ones play your ones. First team to win three will take it. What I do not like about this format is when they have a big venue like they do in Alabama, all the matches going at the same time. If you're watching a game and you're getting really into it, it might just stop randomly at like 18-17 because their, their other three courts have finished up and the game's over. So my next question is, is there an individual team national champion or is there just a team national champion? Because you'd think... If you have this format, you know, 504132, the team moves forward, but I think there should be like a pairs national championship. Like if the McNamara's are playing and they win the tournament, they should be crowned national champion. So I believe with this format, it's team all the way, but the Pac-12 has gone the route of, of a, a beach tournament format where a team, two, one pair, will essentially win the whole event, which... Which is another way to look at this. I think there are some schools that maybe don't have five teams deep, but they, they might have a pair who could be the national champion, right? So if you look at the CIS, because I refuse to call it U-Sports because it's a stupid name, uh, if you look at the way that they do track and field, they have individual events, and for each individual event, you're allotted a team point. So say a gold medal is worth 10 points, a silver medal is worth 8, you can go all the way down, six, five, four, three, two. anyway... I think the best way that we should be shaping these tournaments is to have a full-on, maybe double elimination, pool play, power pool, playoff tournament, and then you rank individual performances and give them a team score, and then at the end of the tournament, you have a team national champion. I agree with you. I, I like how you're forward-thinking, always looking at, uh, you know, 
putting our sport on the highest possible level. At the same time, this is like the fifth year they've had an NCAA championship that it's been recognized at this stage. So I'm just kind of happy it's there. But you're right. I like where you're going with this. Yeah, because it's, it's unfortunate, like you said, that you can have uh, almost meaningless games. Like if you're playing in the fifth game and you're already, you've already lost four, like your team's already lost four, then not to say that it isn't worth playing, but it's not worth playing. I think the promoters have said it's it's not worth playing. As soon as one school wins three, they kind of blow the horn and everybody stops, which is very anti Yeah, no kidding. Also, I mean, not to celebrate success and losses, but, you know, that's what we are doing. What if you do your job and you're the team? You can win 40 matches in a row, but if you have teammates that don't win a game, say Josh and I are playing and we're the number one team and we win and we're 40-0, but our teammates suck and our school's 0-40. So we can keep winning, but not really recognized for our performance. That's why you got to really influence the practice environment. One team, one dream. One team, one family. Or figure out a way to get the other teams up to uh, up to the level, or teach them how to skyball so their game takes longer, so you can win and hope that two other teams win, and they can just delay the game a little bit longer. You know what? I think you said it best when you said, "Just figure it out." <laughs> so once again, uh, thank you, TJ Sanders, for coming on the show. That uh, that was great to uh, to hear just some insight and uh, some background into uh, you know world class setter, world class guy. Great guy, TJ. So if any of our, our fans want to recommend any players, just let us know. I think it shows how accessible it is where I think you commented on something on TJ's social media and all of a sudden he's on the show. It was pretty... Just like that. Maybe we're just a big deal and he got the message from us and he's like, I'm getting the call. Of all the calls he's gotten, pro, Olympics, I think passing dimes has got to be on that podium. Just waiting. Just waiting. 